You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. Hello, I'm Dan Sennett, partner at Holland and Knight's National Security Group. We're excited to have with us today Stephanie Halcrow, Senior Fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. She's here today to talk with us about a report she co-authored on consortia titled The Power of Many, Leveraging Consortia to Promote Innovation, Expand the Defense Industrial Base, and Accelerate Acquisition. Stephanie, welcome. Thanks so much, Dan. It's great to see you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Well, first, uh, as you know, since you were my boss on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, most recently I was a professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee. I handled uh, acquisition policy and industrial-based policy for the committee. Um, And during that time, I actually interacted with this issue about consortia. And there wasn't anything written about consortia, and and I didn't know a lot. So... So fast forward to a few months ago, I was presented with the opportunity to write this report. And I thought to myself, I'm gonna write the report that I always wanted to read when I was on the committee. And so this is the result. Great, and and let me just at the outset, can you for our listeners say, what is a consortium or consortia being the plural of consortium? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we actually, in the report, talk about the consortia model because there's typically three active participants in the consortia model. The first is the government sponsor. They're the individuals that have a requirement for a prototype or some sort of research that needs to be done. Then the second is the consortia, singularly the consortium. They are the organization that gathers the industry, the academia, the nonprofits that might be in a particular technical space. They uh, gather them together in a, in a membership type of an organization. Now, there's also a third organization called a consortium management firm. And that consortium management firm often acts as an intermediary between the government and the consortia and provides administrative support, contracting report. And there are several other items that they, other activities that they provide to not only the government, but also to the consortia members. And those are all listed in the report um, and that. So every consortia model is a little bit different, but those are typically the three entities that participate in a consortium. So essentially a consortium would be, we're going to get together industry, government, um, universities, nonprofits to kind of solve an issue uh, that the government is currently facing. Is that about Yeah, absolutely. So the value proposition that the consortium model brings to the government is this idea of collaboration. And there's a couple different ways that the collaboration happens. So first, the collaboration happens between government and industry and academia. So the government has a requirement and the, the consortium uh, leaders 
We'll organize events that will bring the government uh, participants together, we'll bring the industry participants, the government will present their problem, they'll actually have conversations like, this is our problem, industry will say, well, did you know we have this capability? Government will say, we did not know that. And so they will inform the requirement, improve the requirement, and that collaboration between government and industry is one of the value propositions. And I'll just touch on another value proposition with regards to collaboration, and that's industry to industry. So at these collaboration events, you have non-traditional defense contractors. Oftentimes they're small businesses, not always, but then you have contractors that are already in the defense industrial base. And that communication coming together uh, and leveraging the capabilities that each other has is also a benefit to the government. So, so it sounds like if you're a non-traditional defense company looking to get in, and we have clients who are always seeking assistance in how do I get into DOD? How do I meet with the right people in DOD? How do I um, make my presence known in the industry? And it sounds like a consortium is one way to do that, both get exposure to DOD, get exposure maybe to universities if you're in like emerging tech. Um, and then also get exposure to the big prime defense companies as well. Yeah, absolutely. So at the time that we published our report, we had found 42 consortia that do business with the government. Um, that number actually is greater than that because as we were publishing the report, I found another one. But in the appendix, there's that list. And so if a company is interested in getting involved in the defense industrial base, that list will be, or the consortia are organized around different technology areas. Um, and so they will find a consortia that kind of matches up with the services or products that they're offering. Um, and so that's a great place to start. Sometimes there's been criticism that even though non-traditional defense contractors are participants and members of these consortia, they really don't win awards. Well, we were really fortunate. Of the 42 consortia that we found and identified, 12 of them agreed to provide data for the report. And so of those 12 consortia, we found across the board, 67% of the awards made were led by non-traditional defense contractors. So they're not all going to the primes. Non-traditional defense contractors, more often than not, are winning our lead of the award, winning the awards. That's great. And so the first, and, and I just want to clarify, this is not, right? So the first sentence of this report says, this is not another report on other transaction authorities. We know there's a lot out there on OTAs um, and other transactional authorities. So um, it, it, it's not about that, right? But it is adjacent to that subject. So what's new in this report that we don't have in all those um, OT reports from the past several years? Yeah, so the OT reports never talk about the value proposition that the consortium model brings to the government. And we talked about a couple of those, the collaboration between government and industry and academia, the collaboration between industry and industry. We also found a couple really, really amazing aspects the consortia brings, 
and they're identified in case studies also in the, in the report. And so if I can kind of describe those case studies. So first, it is the very essence of attracting non-traditional defense contractors. So we interviewed an executive director of a company, non-traditional defense contractor, and he found that the process of working to, with the government through the consortia allowed for his non-traditional uh, company, which is also a small business, to get an award for a prototype, prove to the government that they could perform on this contract, and then were transitioned to production. And he said, and we've quoted him in the report, he never could have done that without the consortia. He never could have won the big production contracts because the government would never have had confidence or have seen the technology that he could provide. Another value proposition that the consortia brings is a ready access to the surge of capacity and a ready access to a technology group that's already put together. So in the summer of 2020, um, there existed a consortia that, that uh, technology was, was medical issues. And so also, as we all know, in the summer of 2020, we were facing the response to COVID and we needed a vaccine. So Operation Warp Speed said, wow, we have a consortia that's organized around this technology, medical, what if we leverage them to find out what the capacity is in our country to, to develop and manufacture a vaccine? And so that consortia, MDMC, uh, sent out a request for information to all of their members, about 300 members, and they said, and oh, by the way, will you send this also to your members? Will you forward this to your networks? And said, we are going to need to have a vaccine developed and manufactured. And so they sent out the requirement for a prototype to develop a vaccine that could be approved by the FDA and manufacture 100 million doses. And four companies responded. Interestingly enough, none of them were members of the consortia, but the government made them pay the $500 to become members of the consortia. And then they were awarded the prototype. And these are the names that you're familiar with, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna. This was only possible because there was a network that was standing ready to handle that surge capacity that not only the DOD needed, but the government in our country needed. That's great. And, and so let's take it back. Um, to the first example that you gave, where you have a non-traditional small, non-traditional defense company that is a small business. And I think one of the vignettes in there, and I'm looking at like case study B, uh, it, it says in here that, and this is quoting the small business owner, um, consortia provide immediate value to the company by being able to collaborate with the government. A small business would never be able to walk into the program manager's office and have an open conversation about requirements. But the consortium model allows for this and is, a hu is huge for small business. And that's kind of what you've seen throughout this your research and pre uh, prepping this report. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the um, things that whenever you talk to a consortia that they highlight is the 
when we use the word collaboration, but they have actual events where they bring the government sponsors together in the same room with industry, with academia, and they actually sit down and talk. Imagine that, you know, but it's only through the consortia that this happens. The, the, the conversation never happens in this open manner anywhere else. Um, and so I really, it's, I think, very powerful for non-traditional defense contractors that want to break into the defense space to start this way. Okay, so now let's talk about the primes. Um, what benefit, it sounds like it's pretty clear, it helps raise the profile of non-traditional defense companies. What motivation would a, a big prime defense contractor have for participating in a consortium? You know, we interviewed a couple primes and, and I asked them that question because I was like, why are you a member? What benefit does this have to you? And they very quickly both answered separately and said, we find great value with talking with the non-traditional defense contractors and potentially using them as our supplier base. And so that's another benefit to non-traditional defense contractors is that you can start partnering with primes um, to be their suppliers or their partners on contracts, not, not routed through Concordia. So um, you talk a lot in this report about how the number of government-sponsored consortia has grown. Um, final component, we've talked about non-traditionals, we've talked about traditional defense companies. What's the benefit to DOD? So DOD right now doesn't have the capacity to do all the administrative and contracting activities that are typically now done through the consortium management firms or the training for the companies um, and the mentoring for the companies that oftentimes the consortia does for the companies. The DOD just doesn't have that capacity to do. And so the consortia model brings that additional capacity to the government. Um, also, I think it's hard to ask the government to be part of a collaborative conversation if there isn't some sort of facilitator that's organizing the event and bringing those folks together and, and uh, actively encouraging that, that conversation. So I think that's hard for the government to do it. And that's why you really see these consortias being used across all different technology areas. You see a number of them at the joint level. You see a number of them at the services level. In this research for this report, I heard a number of program offices say, oh yeah, we're interested in getting our own consortium as well because this is working so well for these other people you know, down the hall that we see. Great, um, so in the last couple of minutes that we have, um, two questions. The first one is several recommendations in the report. What Can you give us kind of some highlights of the major ones um, that, that you want to highlight? Yeah. So the first thing is visibility and transparency of the activities that the government is using consortium for. And we're going to say data. So we were really fortunate that out of the 42 consortia that we identified, 12 were willing to give us the data. The data exists but the government isn't collecting it and consolidating it and evaluating it, and it's not easily publicly accessible. 
And so Congress actually over the years, uh, and, and they get stronger language and stronger language each year, has directed the department in FY22 very specifically on what to collect and has directed GSA to uh, track that information in FPDS. So we encourage that. We found in the 12 consortia that the data that we collected supported all of these value propositions. Um, and we think as more data is collected, it will be true. We also recommend to avoid additional regulatory burdens. This is not a report about OTs, but consortia, the majority of them definitely use the flexibility that is provided uh, in statute with OTs. Oftentimes we hear people saying, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if we added um, that there's a you know, clause about epidemics to an OT? Well, no, we went through the epidemic. We didn't find any problems with the OTs. We need to preserve the flexibility in the OTs and not add the regulatory burden. And, and finally, I think DOD should concentrate on not only transitioning the prototypes to production, but tracking that. We found it very difficult, even with the consortia that provided the data, to find that link between the transition because typically the prototype was done with the consortia and with the consortia management firm, but the production follow-on activity was done directly with the government and industry. And so there was a, a broken link there mm -hmm. of understanding it. We were able to find some anecdotal information like through press releases and things like that. We think if the government collects the data, they're going to find that it's probably happening and they probably can find ways to do it more. And that will just um, continue to improve the value proposition of consortium. Um, and then the final question, which uh, the, I'm going to veer off of the report for just a minute. Any thoughts on uh, acquisition reform measures that are currently underway or what we might see in the FY23 NDAA? So I was surprised by the Senate version of the NDAA. I found that there was a large number of provisions that returned to adding additional regulations and burdens to the acquisition system. So we'll see how that all flushes out in conference. But as we talked about, one of the recommendations in this report is to avoid adding regulatory burdens to consortia, to OTs. And my position is we need to avoid that across the board. It sounds like if you are a non-traditional defense company, if you are a traditional defense company, uh, you should probably take a look at consortium and how they might be able to, to benefit you and your business. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Um, so where can people, once again, the, the report is the power of many, leveraging consortia to promote innovation, expand the defense industrial base, and accelerate acquisition. And where can we find that on the internet? Yes, yeah, so the report is on the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University's website, uh, but I'm sure we can also uh, provide you guys a link and you can uh, send it out with this podcast. That's perfect, and we will do that. And Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Dan. Great to see you. All right. Thanks very much. 
Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.